Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. Hey man, what are you doing up here other than uh, being a prop for a stupid skit that we wrote? Yeah. Oh, I am uh, just, I'm doing well. Like I, I took my gauge just then, doing pretty good. And I'm uh, just spending a little time in, in the word of God, in scripture. And oh, kinda, awesome, man. Yeah. Well, hey, tell me about it. What you been reading? Well, um, I've actually been, I started one of those, and then all these people listening, I'm sure you've eavesdropping people here but like those bible reading plans i started one of those this year and um i it started off in genesis so i heard about creation and the awe of of god's spirit hovering over waters and bringing order out of chaos and then uh, then there's this walking talking snake that nobody seems to have a problem with it's just natural for the anyway and and it comes in and um kind of throws a wrench in, in God's perfect creation. And, and so God decides to start working with this family. Um, and though they make tons and tons of mistakes uh, through the patriarchs, God still um, partners with like Abraham and Isaac and, and Jacob. And man, it, it, it's been pretty, pretty awesome. Pretty good. So you yeah. got your Genesis? Where are you at now? Did. Uh, Exodus, um, you know, part of the, the whole... Uh, Pentateuch and stuff and Torah, and, uh, but um, like you have to fast forward a few hundred years, uh, but all of a sudden God's people now are in slavery. They've been there for several hundred years, and so they cry out to God. Um, God listens to them. Um, he delivers them. He, he attacks these Egyptian gods um, with these plagues that... It goes against him. He goes to war with them, uh, gets the people out. He takes them to the wilderness and up to this mountain and says, Hey, I, I want a relationship with you guys. Um, and I want to I use your voice to oh, just bless others, to, be, to proclaim what really matters in, in life and to be my people. And so, oh, I, I yeah, love that part of Exodus. It reads like a movie. Yes, I mean, it really does. It's incredible, mm-hmm. epic. Incredible story. So where are you at now? What chapter are you in? I have made it finally to like the second part of Exodus. Uh, so like Exodus 25 is, is where I just started reading verse yeah. 1. Yeah, what's happening in 24? Tell me real quick, and then well, I want to ask you to read a little bit of it. All right, so like there's this mountain, and God's invited his people to, to like, all right, I want, I want to be in a relationship with you, and so I'm going to set, set apart these different things that you need to follow in order to for me to come and dwell in your midst. And like God's offered, I'm not going to be far off. I'm not going to be like, I'm coming to dwell. I'm going to set up a tent. Like it's basically what I got so far, but, um, well, it sounds awesome. I mean, it can't let it let down from where you've been. So I, if I, you don't mind, read it out loud. I'd love to hear a little bit of it. I'm going to um, just settle in here and just re- and, okay. and listen. And maybe maybe all the people who are awkwardly yeah. listening to yeah, our conversation I mean, can settle I, in too. So turn around. Let's, let's like, hear. Face let's your hear own this. table. Right. Uh, 
Now, this scripture is meant to be heard, I think, and listened to. So it only makes sense if, if you are eavesdropping out there in whatever place we're in. I'm in uh, Exodus chapter 25, uh, starting about verse 10. Hear, hear the word of the Lord. I think that's how you're supposed to start this. Oh. They shall make an ark of acacia wood. It shall be two and a half cubits long, a cubit and a half wide, and a cubit and a half high. You shall overlay it with pure gold. Inside and outside you shall overlay it. And you shall make a molding of gold upon it and all around. You shall cast four rings of gold for it and put them on its four feet, two rings on one side of it, two rings on the other side. You shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. And you shall put the poles into the right... <laughs> now, no disrespect towards Scripture. And thank Barry real quick for coming up here with me. Appreciate you, Barry. I mean, no disrespect to Scripture. But if you've ever done daily Bible reading, there is an epic that happens through Genesis. And then you get into Exodus. And then you get these plagues and these amazing stories. And if you've been following along, with our stupid little skit here, you know that by the time you get to Exodus 25, Moses has been invited into the presence of God. In chapter 24, him and the 70 elders, him and Aaron and 70 elders, 72 guys. There's a connection to the New Testament there that we won't talk about. But 72 guys get to commune with God on the mountain of God, Mount Sinai. And you're thinking, man, this, can, this is awesome. And then you get to, verse 20, you get to chapter 25, verse 10. And scripture turns and there's this strange experience we have with it. It's a place where daily Bible readers go to die. <laughs> because you get not a visual blueprint, you get what is strange to our 21st century post-enlightenment ears. You get a written blueprint. Cubits and feet and gold and overlay this. And it repeats itself over and over and over and honestly, without any disrespect to Scripture, just with our modern ears, it can become snooze-inducing. And the section that we're talking about this morning, of course, is the description that God gives Moses on top of Mount Sinai about the tabernacle. And the reason we're even talking about this today is because starting on Friday... And then opening up on Saturday, we're going to have a full-size replica of the tabernacle. We're going to be hosting this thing. And even more important than that, large chunks of Scripture are dedicated to this thing called the tabernacle. The back third of Exodus, the whole book of Leviticus is about how to worship and interact and sacrifice and come near to God at the tabernacle parts of numbers, and then scripture is centered around this tabernacle life all the way up to the time of Solomon when he builds the temple. 
So the question for us this morning that you're probably asking after seeing that work of art that you just saw is why, of the, why is this even important? Maybe you've gone through scripture and read daily Bible and you just try to skim through this, uh, this time. Or maybe you're even new to the Bible and you're going, why would a modern Christian church host a tabernacle? Is it important for us living in 2022? And you know or we wouldn't be doing this today, the answer is what? Of course it is. Yes. The tabernacle, as you will hopefully experience as you go through and volunteer with it next week, and my prayer is that you will discover today, is a model of a reminder of the love and nearness of God. So let's jump into it right now. Let's jump into, grab your Bibles. There's no notes on the app today, but grab your Bibles. Grab a bulletin if you want to take some notes on this. If you're a student of the Bible, you're going to love this. But let's go to Exodus 25. And allow me for just a few moments to nerd out, okay? We're going to nerd out for just a moment, okay? We're going to jump into this, and we're going to understand why the tabernacle is so important. So get your nerd, Bible nerd glasses on with me and let's jump right in. I'm going to go through this fast. Now Exodus, like any other book in the Bible, is structured, highly structured to be Jewish meditation literature. It's woven together in a beautiful way to push the reader towards what Scripture is about. And Scripture is about God. It's about revealing who He is. So Exodus is assembled like this. It's assembled in three major movements. Chapter 1, verse 1 through 12, 16 is the section of enslavement to liberation. This section, although it starts with bad news, ends with good news, but this section in chapter 12 closes with a detailed description of the Passover feast, a seven-day festival to celebrate freedom from oppression. Movement 2 starts in 1217 and moves all the way to 2418. And it is a section chronicling the journey from Egypt to Mount Sinai. The invitation that Barry was just talking about of God saying, come to the mountain, come to my covenant, accept relationship with me, be my people. This section also, notice this, closes with a seven-day motif, with Moses sitting on Mount Sinai for six days, and on the seventh day in chapter 24, going through the veil or the cloud up to the top of the mountain to be with God for 40 days. Movement three, our focus is the description of what Moses sees on top of the mountain. Now, the tabernacle is a model for what he sees. He sees heaven and God says, build this. Build a model of what you see. And what he sees is what we call the tabernacle. So Exodus works in three movements, but also Exodus 25 through 40 is written also in three smaller movements. Exodus 25 through 31 is the tabernacle plans. Exodus 32 through 34 is an interlude of pause of, uh uh-oh, the people have sinned and started to break the first command already, a golden calf. And then it 
again repeats, the passages repeat almost, almost in word for word from the description in 25 through 31, it's repeated in 35 through 40 of how they built the tabernacle. So our focus for today, though, is going to be on this section. Our focus is going to be on 25 through 31 because in that small section, we're going to start to understand why the tabernacle matters. But let us keep nerding out because the description of the tabernacle is important. God is doing something when he shows Moses this vision of heaven, what he sees on the mountain, and God is saying, go take that down the mountain to the people. And the description of the tabernacle starts with this. Tabernacle is not a real fancy word. It is in us. We, never, we don't go, hey, let's go camping. I'll build a tabernacle. But that's really what we mean. Tabernacle just means tent, dwelling place, covering. That's all it means. It's just a tent. So when you go camping, uh, you guys, Ethan, you go every year, right? You guys go and bear, you take them on. You guys build little tabernacles, right? But the tabernacle, it looks like this, Okay. You're going to see this next week. There's going to be live fire. There's going to be incense. There's going to be bread. It's all going to be there. The tabernacle, though, is this incredible dwelling place. And what God does in chapters 25 through 31 is notice the pattern here. In this section, as he describes the tabernacle, this dwelling place, this tent, God is going to describe this tent in seven paragraphs to Moses where he's going to give instructions for three different things seven times. All right? Is that confusing? Here's what he does. He's going to tell him first, gather seven articles to fill the tabernacle. The supplies, the ark, a table, the lampstand and menorah, the curtains, the altar, and the drapes that will surround it. Then in the next section that he does this, he closes or continues about seven more parts of the tabernacle. The end. Incense altar, the water basin, the oil, and more. Then chapters 28, 29, 30, and 31 close with a description of seven more articles that the priest will wear as they approach the holy place. So what you have here is a tent that's got an outer courtyard, a holy place, and then an inner most holy place all built around sevens. This is purposeful. This is where if you've got your nerd glasses on or you've been studying your text or if you understand how the Bible works, seven is there to tell you completeness, but seven is also to do what? Descriptions of seven and gold and smoke and approaching the Lord are all there to remind us of something. And if you've just been reading Genesis to Exodus like Barry was doing in our skit earlier, you should automatically think, ah, sevens. God keeps going seven over and over to remind us of this. And this is what the tabernacle is. The tabernacle, as structured in Exodus 25 through 31, is telling us, Moses, go build a mini mobile Eden. I'm going to allow you to carry around a miniature Garden of Eden, wherever you go in this desert. He is, God, is giving them an open door to fellowship through the tabernacle. It is a vehicle of relationship. 
an invitation back. Now, a couple more things. This is clearly seen. If you're with me so far, and I'll ask you to come back with me here in just a sec. But this is clearly seen when you get into this drawing here of how it looked inside the holy place. What you had was articles and emblems, symbols of Eden. Symbols like the menorah. Here is a replica of the menorah. The menorah had seven lamps representing the completeness of the light of God. And they were made to look like a tree. The menorah here is made to say, Look, I am putting in your midst again what used to be in the midst of the Garden of Eden, the tree of life. Light and life. You also had the table of incense. This was outside the curtain before you went to the holy place. It continually had smoke going up before it in order to represent relationship between God and the people, the prayers, the relationship, the ongoing conversation, the song that Corey just led us in that we struggle with a little bit. On and on we walk together. Christ is closely by my side. That could have been a theme song for the table of incense. The idea was we get to come into the presence of God. There was the table of showbread, which I don't have a good picture of, which was a a cross from the menorah. And it was continually lit 24 hours a day by the menorah to show the bread in the light of God, saying God will always be present. He will be here. And then finally, in the most holy of places, there was the ark representing the mercy seat of God or the atonement seat, his throne, where you could go and the priest once a year would go meet with him. Now, finally, one more quick thing is if we go back to our picture of this mini mobile Eden, what we have, which I'm not going to show the picture again, what we have is a three-layered experience with God. You have an invitation. And it might help you to think about this in these terms. If you think about the tabernacle, and when it's on our our, uh, campus next week, it's going to have an outer court, a holy place, and then a most holy place, which is a model of concentric circles of exactly how God shows up on Mount Sinai. You have the camp of the people, Then you have the mountain where the 72 went up and feasted with God. And then you have the most holy place where Moses went. Which is the exact model that early creation, the first creation, God's original intent for creation in Genesis 1 and 2 was meant. You had the earth, which had, it's not the garden of Eden, it's the garden in Eden. It's the garden in the creation. And then inside the Eden place, you had the life, the tree of life. So three concentric circles. So, nerd time over. Some of you wake back up. Come back with me because we're going to get back to the question here. Okay? The question is, why is this important? It's important for this reason. Please hold on to this. The tabernacle, when we discover it, and we're going to discover a little more of it here in a moment, contradicts and confronts a long-held Christian half truth. And that Christian half-truth is this. We often say, well, God can't be in the midst of sin. Or we might say that sin cannot be in the midst of God. 
which is true, but it's only half true. Because when you see what God was doing in the tabernacle, is he wasn't saying from a distance, oh, you guys are so sinful, let me stay over here. He, in fact, invites Moses up to the top of the mountain to go, I want to show you how I can be in the midst of you. You see how that's a half-truth? It's a lie to tell people that God can't be in the midst of sin when he shows up in the midst of sin all the time. He builds a tabernacle and says, I'm going to set up camp right in the middle of this sinful Israelite people so that I can show them and invite them back to what really matters. That's the heart of the tabernacle. An invitation by God to say, come back to the mini mobile Eden. Come back and know me. Now, so what, right? I've probably lost half of you. I'm working on another three quarters of you. You're like, who cares, Jake? You can study that and have fun in your office uh, on Tuesdays like you do, but we don't care, right? Well, I did have fun this week, so should it, all right? (laughs) I had a lot of fun studying that. It's so cool to me, the sevens and the threes and the way it's structured, but I want to answer that so what. Because this is good stuff for Israel. This is good news for Israel. That in the midst of their sin, and even in the midst of them sinning right in the middle of this description, God still says, I'm going to build it anyway. It's good news. But for us, who answer the question, so what? What we realize is we have even better news. See, this is a good news story. If you're interested in the story of Israel, it's a good news story. But Our story, when we start to look at Jesus as the tabernacle, becomes great news. Don't you just love a good news story that becomes great news? Or don't you just love a good day when it starts out at 8, but by noon it's even better, and by 5 it's even better, and by bedtime it's been a great day. Everything just lines up. I heard this story years ago. It was 1999. This story of a man whose good day turned out to be even better. It's a story of an Australian truck driver. His name was Bill Morgan. And his story started in tragedy as he was in an auto accident with his truck and another truck. He was left basically for dead. They got him to the hospital and he was in a coma for 12 full days. It was on that 12th day that the doctors had told his family, there's barely any hope. We can keep him alive, but if you pull the plug, he is not going to live much longer. But Bill Morgan on the 13th day, suddenly out of nowhere, woke up from his coma and was perfectly fine. And miraculously, he walked out of the hospital because he was so fine on that 13th day after just running a few tests. He woke up from a 12-day coma and on the 13th day went home. He was feeling so good about himself and so lucky that he decided to stop by a convenience store. He stopped by a convenience store where he bought an Australian version of a lottery ticket. I don't know what that's called, a wallaby or something like that. And he bought that and he scratched it off where he won a brand new car. He had just wrecked his truck. He thought his day was going great. Well, this story started to take off. His good day was starting to get better. A local news station, as they heard about it, it's not a big deal for somebody to win the lottery. News doesn't usually pick up on that. But because this guy had been basically dead, came out of a coma, scratched off a lotto ticket, and won a brand new car, 
The, lot of, the local news station was like, we got to get on this. So they got a hold of Bill. They said, we want to do an interview with you. And they said, we want to do the, the interview right at the convenience store. And so they brought him to the convenience store. And there's that, you can look this up on YouTube. You can actually watch it. Um, and they got him there, and they're like, we need to shoot some B-roll. So can we get another lottery ticket for the guy? So they got another lottery ticket. And on TV, they're, getting, they're, they're shooting B-roll, and they're, they're watching him just trying to get some shots of him scratching off a ticket. And you see his face turn from good news to great news because he just won the car, and he's scratching off a ticket. And he turns, and he goes, I just won $250,000. <laughs> it's incredible. That's just a hilarious good news turning great news story. And I want us to have that in our mind. Because that is the story of when we look at the tabernacle through the body and life and salvation of Jesus. Our story is not just good news. It is great news. And it's because of this. John 1, 14. Look at how John speaks of Jesus. Y'all know this passage. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Right? We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who is sent from the father full of grace and truth. Now you may say, well, yeah, Jake, what's that have to do with the tabernacle? The Greek word here, this is why Greek's important. It's words like this. The Greek word for dwelling is the same word for tabernacle. What John is saying is Jesus, the word who was with God and was from God and was God, John 1.1, 1, 1, has come and he has tabernacled with us. He has moved in next door. And this is great news. So why is, the, why is the tabernacle important for us? It's because as Jesus as our tabernacle, number one is this. The great news is, is that in Jesus, because he is tabernacled with us, we see God. In the tabernacle for the Israelites, Yahweh God came near. But for us, in Jesus, when he tabernacles next to us, he comes even closer, near as a baby born in a manger, as near as a 12-year-old boy, inquisitive and curious in the temple, as near as a man who lived life as a man, with full of temptations and trial and hardship, and as near as a friend to disciples who later would become the apostles, as near as a savior that for each of us bled and died. But even more than that, the great news is, is that in Jesus we see who God really is. It's Hebrews 1.3. He is the fullness, right? He is the perfect representation of who God is. But even greater than that, church, oh, now this is just truth you guys know that we need to dwell on this morning. It is that he not only tabernacled next to us, through the Holy Spirit, he tabernacles in us. And our awareness of that, our awareness of that great news and living into that reality will change everything in your life. 
When is the last time, church family, you spent a little time just going, I want to believe the promise of the Great Commission? Where Jesus tells the disciples, go make disciples and I will be with you always. See, that should change everything for us, right? Is that we are walking, living, breathing tabernacles of the presence of God. Wherever wherever we go, the presence of God goes with us. Second thing I want us to mention out of Jesus is that the great news of Jesus as our tabernacle is this, is that through Jesus, we get to draw near to God and near to him together. This isn't a Lone Ranger show. It isn't one of us out there blazing the trail. I want you to hear these words. It's going to be on the screen. It's Hebrews 10, 19 through 25. And honestly, I worked and worked on this section of the sermon more than any other because I wanted to try to convey this passage and do it justice. And I have failed this morning. (laughs) So I'm just going to let the passage do its best. Listen to this passage. It's Hebrews 10, 19 through 25. Hebrew writers talking about what Jesus has done is going to give us a depiction of the tabernacle, of the temple, and what Jesus has done on our behalf. And notice what this does when it draws us together. Hebrew writer says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, the place that only one priest could go once a year. Now in Christ, the great news is we together, brothers and sisters, get to enter into that space by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened up for us through the curtain. That is his body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with sincere heart with a full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider us how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some of us are in their habit of doing, but encourage one another all the more as you see the day approaching. In other words, this passage, guys, this is a wow, wow passage. Lays me flat every time I read it. And I will confess, I really am having a difficult time trying to convey its truth. But what he has just said is that in Christ we don't stand on the outside of the tabernacle. We get to sit and get on our knees on the inside. Brothers and sisters, we have walked past the altar, past the bronze wash basin, past and maybe taken a part of the bread. We've smelled the incense and we've pulled back the curtain, which is now the body of Jesus, and we go into the most holy of places. Now, when we imagine that in our minds, and as if you were following along, it's a powerful image to think of that. To think that in the heavenly realms, we have that access to God. It's powerful to realize I'm not worthy of that kind of access. I don't have DEFCON 1 access. But through Jesus, I get it. It's powerful to imagine 
being in the presence of God. But I'll tell you what's even more powerful for me is that when I close my eyes and imagine that, what the passage just said is that when I close my mind and ima- eyes and imagine that and think about that in my mind's eye, I need to look around because I'm not the only one there. It is together we enter that space. So we've been taught as an individuals to, to come to God by ourselves, right? And we often imagine ourselves in the presence of God alone. But I would encourage y'all to understand the great news that you get to walk into the presence of God with your brothers and sisters. And how much that changes the way we do Christian faith. And when I open my eyes and look around and I'm in the presence of God, I'm not just there. I'm there with you. Hebrews is going on to say in chapter 12, you're also there with who's going before you. Those who have passed. Had a Christian professor one time say this incredible thing that he had lost his wife and he had lost his oldest son. And he said, the reason I worship with church family is that's where I go to be with my wife and son. Because when I worship, I'm in the midst of all brothers and sisters in the heavenly throne. That's the image. And finally... The great news is not only we get this God with us and we get to do this together, but Jesus is our tabernacle. Better than good news, the great news is that in this Christ, the world gets to see Jesus in us. I can't help but think this is what Peter has in mind in 2 Peter 1, 3, and 4. Acapella fans, y'all will know this, right? says his divine power has given us everything we need. Sounds like good news, right? His divine power has given us everything we need. For what? For to live for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, through what? Through these, his goodness and glory, he's given us his very great and precious promises. And I want you to lean in on this line. So he's given us everything we need so that we can live out the promises he's given us and so that through them you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption of the world caused by evil desires. So again, the word there is not only in John 1.14 do we hear that Jesus is tabernacled with us, but he's also tabernacled in us. We discover that in the rest of the New Testament. Here, the word is, you now can participate in Jesus' divine nature. And the word there for participation is what we do every few Sundays that we call fellowship feast. It's a participation. It's koinonia. You get to, because Jesus is the presence of God. He was a micro-Eden. And because he's given us access back to the Father, we now, in that throne room, get to fellowship in the divine nature. So let's make that make sense. Here's what that means. If I get to participate in the divine nature, if what we did just a few moments ago in taking bread and cup is participation in Jesus, same word, by the way, is not the body we take, the participation of Christ's body. <laughs> That's the scripture, right? 1 Corinthians 10 and 11. 
If that is participation, what Peter is saying here is that that should matter. So Moses comes down the mountain after 40 days. You guys remember he comes down the mountain? He's got the tablets. This is the second time he comes down. (laughs) And he's got those tablets in his hands. And what do the people notice about him? Something a little off about Moses, right? Anybody remember? His face is lit up like, right? Right? It's not a sunburn. It's like a spotlight, right? In other words, time with God made a difference in his life. I think of Acts uh, chapter 4, 13 and 14 that Coleman just read for us just a few moments ago. It's a passage in which he, the, the, Peter and John are standing in front of the Sanhedrin and they say to the Sanhedrin, they say to them, you judge for yourselves whether this is right, right? That's what they get to. But they basically tell them salvation is found in no other name other heaven and earth other than Jesus Christ. And then, after they have that moment, the Sanhedrin says, there's this little note Luke gives us. They take note that these people had been with Jesus. See, that's the great news. Is that not only have we been invited into the presence of God through Jesus, the great news is, is that the world ought to take note that we've been with him. Let me give you the best evangelistic, and I'll wrap up with this. I want to give you the best evangelistic, uh, I don't know what the word is, model, <laughs> plan. I want to give you this, and this, this some of you will notice this because this is just thought I've had since I listened to something yesterday. It is not the church's job to save the world. It is Jesus' job. It is the church's job to display Jesus so that the people can see they need saved. So the best way we can reach Canadian, Wheeler, Perryton, Miami, is make what we say and do in here and what we say and do together matter. The best plan we have is not having a great Bible study. That's important. But the best thing you can do to show somebody Jesus is to take serious that he has tabernacled in you. So your face ought to look a little different than the world. Your actions ought to look a lot different than the world. The way you treat people ought to shine a bright light into a dark, selfish world. That's the power of Jesus as our tabernacle. And this next week we're going to get to see that. All right, we're thankful y'all are here today. This was a different kind of sermon. But let's stand together and sing. If you need anything, we're here for you, okay?